about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Good evening, my name is Roger Bray, I'm one of the ministers here, and we're looking at that psalm, Psalm 121, uh, this evening, so you might like to keep that open. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading um, a survey that was conducted by the Australian Psychological Society. Uh, It's a survey that was looking into the well-being of Australians and asking questions of Australians in terms of well-being. Um, What they discovered is in their latest survey that had been running for the last five years, that 2015 anxiety symptoms were the highest they'd been in the five years that they'd conducted the survey. They discovered that people are feeling anxious in our society. 35% of Australians report having significant levels of stress. 26% of Australians report having extreme or severe levels of depression. These are extraordinary figures, aren't they? We live in a world which is so rich and so full of so many things. We live in a world that has so much, certainly in comparison to many other countries, and yet our level of anxiety and stress has been heightened. And I've seen this in many conversations I've had with people. People are feeling anxious. Now, the survey went on to explore what are the reasons behind this anxiety, and some of the things included things like personal finances, sorting those sorts of things out, family issues, personal health, trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Certainly in an area like this where the way you look and the way you are healthy is important, maintaining that healthy lifestyle is actually pretty stressful. There are also issues to do with health um, of others and friends and family and, and, their, and people themselves. So those kinds of things were at the top of the list in terms of anxiety. Now, I guess all of us experience anxiety at different levels. And, I, and in, in fact, in talking about it this evening, I recognise that for some people that raises anxiousness. Um, and I ask you just to bear with me as we look at, at the scriptures together. And of course, if you're in a situation where you have a particular kind of anxiety or depression, I want to recommend that you seek help from your doctor, that you seek help from professionals who can support you in the process of sorting out anxiety. I think it's a good thing. I think it takes courage to do, but actually it's a really good thing to do. If you need help, please seek it. But as we come into the beginning of this year and as we think about the year before us and about the many possibilities of the things that could happen, I wonder what resources we have from the Bible that would help us deal with these issues of anxiety. What kind of things can the Bible say to us that help us think through how to deal with anxiety and to deal with situations where we need help? And so I want to turn to Psalm 121 And here we learn about a God who guards us, who watches over us, who's interested in our lives. Now, this psalm, we think, probably was written in such a way that a priest was trying to give some comfort to a king. 
Um, so the idea that the king was a bit anxious about what was happening in his kingdom and therefore the priest was trying to, to uh, help the king with this particular issue. Later on, however, it started to get used for pilgrims. Uh, whether it was pilgrims going to Jerusalem or leaving from Jerusalem, we're not quite sure. But the idea is that the psalm was speaking to people who were anxious, people who were concerned about what was uh, taking place. And the psalmist begins uh, the psalm by saying this, I lift my eyes to the hills. Now that seems like an interesting to do, thing to do. There are beautiful hills out there. You're just about to start on your journey. I lift my eyes to the hills. Of course, as a person starting out on a journey lifted their eyes to the hills, it might cause a number of different things to take place. They might become anxious because of the journey ahead of them. Because in getting to those hills and going through those hills, there was always the chance that you would be robbed. The mountain passes were steep. The ravines and the gorges were great places for ambushes. You could slip. You could have broken bones. You could even die on your pilgrimage. And we see that played out in the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. The thought of going on a journey had some natural fears about it, some natural anxieties about it. The psalmist continues, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And that introduces us to a second idea about hills. Uh, frequently at the time of the, the psalmist, hills were places where built, people built shrines. Uh, they put, the, uh, put shrines there, groves of trees. The idea is that there would be um, spells and promises of magic. Uh, sometimes there was cultic practices that took place uh, on these hills as well. And so the idea of looking to the hills would be to the idea of looking to these cultic practices, to these magic spells, to, to gaining some strength and kind of some good luck, if you like, uh, from engaging in these things for your journey. And so it would be tempting for the person who was on a journey, particularly in the context of the psalmist, to be looking to those hills, to those magic spells, to those kinds of help, to those, in fact, false promises of help. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about the high places in our culture, the things that we look to that are false promises in terms of their help. I think the way it works in our, in our culture is that we think of things that are good things, but make them ultimate things. And so in this same survey that was looking at uh, anxiety and depression, those kinds of things, it found that people that, in, in their ways of dealing with anxiety and depression, decided to distract themselves. That was the main way that they coped uh, with these things. For example, they would watch TV or listen to music or read. These are the best ways people dealt with those particular issues. Others kind of focused on self-help issues, like thinking of the positives, trying to be more positive about life. And then, of course, the other natural one is spending time with family and friends. Now, all those things are good things, and we do need some distractions. We do need to be able to uh, find ourselves in a book and to be reading and to be lost in that world. I think those are all good things, but the reality is I think sometimes we treat these as kind of magic spells. We turn them into things that actually they're not. They can't provide healing. They can't actually change the circumstances. 
They might distract us. They might support us in some way, and they're good things to do, but they're not ultimate things. They're not things that help us ultimately when it comes uh, long-term in terms of anxiety. Well, look what the psalmist does. What resources does he give us when he's thinking about the hills? He goes on in verse 2 and says, My help comes from the Lord. And then he says, The maker of heaven and earth, the maker of the hills, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, in some ways, this is a little bit unexpected. You would think that the psalmist at this particular point, when, it's, when he's thinking about the idea of God coming and helping, would refer to the God who rescued Israel, the God of Egypt, who brought the people out of the land of Egypt, who saved them, who rescued them, who cared for them. But he doesn't speak about a God like that. Indeed, what he does is speak about a God who creates heaven and earth. He draws our attention to a God who creates everything. Now, last week we spoke uh, in our psalm series of the wonder of God's creation. We read, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth his speech. Night after night they display his knowledge. That was actually one of the beautiful things about uh, movies in the graveyard last night, just being able to lay back and look at the stars, actually. And just see the beauty and wonder of what God has done. Did you know how many stars there are? I don't know that anyone's actually counted them. But I'm told there's probably five billion galaxies, let alone stars. Now, I think that sounds like a lot, don't you? But nonetheless, we don't actually know how many, but that's the God. That's the God who creates the heavens and the earths, who comes to our help. My help comes from the Lord, the one who created all these billions of stars, the whole universe, the whole earth, everything in it. He is the one who comes to be our help. He is the one for our pilgrimage, for our journey, for those moments of anxiety. That God is on the job. That God who built us and created us and formed us and shaped us. That God comes to our aid. Well, the psalmist continues and he wants to talk to us about the nature of that help. And you see this in, in verses uh, 3 through to 8. He uses this one word continually. You might notice it. He will not let your foot slip. He watches over you. Verse 4, he watches over Israel. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. Verse 7, he will watch over your life. Verse 8, he will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And the picture here is of someone who guards you, of a guard who is set aside to look after your life. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had someone who's watched over you, but it's a tremendous feeling to know someone is watching over you. When I was in primary school, one of the things we used to do for holidays is travel from the edge of Sarawak to this little island called Labuan. 
The only way to get to this island uh, for our family holiday was to get on a boat. But the boat was full of rice and produce for Labuan. So it was kind of like getting on a small, a tiny little ship. And we'd have to go out in the open water, so it was quite scary in terms of travelling across uh, Brunei Bay, across the ocean, over to Labuan. Now, the trouble with catching these boats was that it wasn't ever very clear as to when they were going to leave. And so you would have to get there early and sit on the boat and wait on the boat to get this journey across to the island. And that means it would often be overnight. You would often be waiting overnight. And my mum used to watch over us. Now, the reason she used to watch over us is because the boat was full of cockroaches and rats as they nibbled on the rice, on the bags that were around us. And she spent the whole night whacking them away and protecting us and guarding us. And we just slept. We didn't know what was going on. She told us later. This God watches over us. The psalmist reminds us that he watches over us. He doesn't slumber or he doesn't sleep. He's not like a guard who's sitting on, on, on guard duty, getting worn out and tired and suddenly closing their eyes and having to keep themselves awake. Now, this is a God who guards us, who's made the heavens and the earth, but he always has us in view, day and night, all the time. He watches over us. And there's something beautiful about being known and being guarded, isn't there? Having someone who knows you and guards your life. Jay Packer puts it like this. There's an unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly looking after me, in love with me, watching over me for my good. There's a tremendous relief in knowing that this love is utterly realistic, based at every point on a prior knowledge of me at my worst. There's nothing for him to discover. He knows all. Even when I have, when I, I have a delusion with myself, disillusion with myself, he's not disillusioned because he's been watching over me. He knows what I'm like. He sees me. He guards me. He watches over my life. There's something very beautiful about a God who takes that much interest in us. Romans 8 reminds us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in the all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The God who creates everything throws the stars into space 
is our guardian God. He watches over our lives. Now, the psalmist says these beautiful things, but doesn't leave us without some complications. I don't know whether you noticed them here in the psalm, in verse 3. He says, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Now, when I hear those words, I find them particularly difficult to believe. He will keep me from all harm? And I think in Australia we find it particularly difficult to believe because of the culture that we've grown up in. And just as an aside, I think it's to do with our expectations in life. We've been brought up in a world where we've been told there are unbounded possibilities and freedoms. It's just a matter of choice whether you become Prime Minister of Australia or a doctor or a dentist or a nurse. It's just you can live whatever life you want to. It's all there for you to live. And expect to grow up making a unique contribution to this world. People will recognise you because you have something special. You have something special to offer. And your careers will be fulfilling. They will be fantastic. You will change the world. And people will thank you for what you've done. They will recognise you and thank you for what you've done. Now, of course, those things may happen, but the reality is there aren't possibly unbounded freedoms and unbounded possibilities. It's just illogical to think that. Not everybody can be unique. It just doesn't make sense. Really, every career will be fulfilling? Look down through history and the people who've lived lives that are completely unfulfilled in terms of their career. Have we somehow beaten that? Really? Now, all of that, I think, as an aside, just sets us up badly for expectations about the way life should be. And if life is not working out about in this way, we start to feel anxious and say, why isn't my life the same? And then you suddenly see social media and all of a sudden you've got this fear of missing out. Look what my friends are doing. Look what's happening. They're better than me. They're getting further than me. They have more friends than me. And you can see how it starts to unfold and we start to develop an anxiety around our lives when actually it's an anxiety around a thing that wasn't real in the first place. And so we find it difficult to hear a God who says, you won't come to harm because we think that he will take all those things away when actually he wants to correct our views and he wants to speak into our lives and say, actually, you're making idols of things that are not real. You're being anxious about things that don't matter. Now, having said that, we're still left with this problem. Not an easy one to resolve, and I've struggled with it all week, actually, as I've been thinking about it. What does it mean that he will watch over my life, watch over my life. It's fascinating to, to read through the church fathers and to see what, how they dealt with this thing. Augustine, in dealing with this particular passage, 
um, actually recognises this. And he takes it almost completely the other direction. He says, yeah, well, clearly people are harmed. For example, St Crispina. She was a woman in 304. And she was a martyr. She had a family. She was a woman of rank. And she came before the proconsul. And the proconsul said, I want you to worship the gods. I want you to obey Caesar. And she said, I'm not going to worship the gods. I've only got one God. This is what she said. I will never sacrifice to anyone but one God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born and suffered for us. The proconsul says, you are stubborn and disrespectful. And she says, if necessary, I will suffer for the faith I hold. And so what do they do? They shave her head and show her great disrespect. And then they kill her. Augustine says, is this the same God we're talking about? The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life, really? Now, as I said, I've been struggling with this question all week, trying to work out how does this work? What, does, what is God actually doing here? And I think part of the answer is to start thinking through what does it mean for God to watch over my life? To see my life from God's perspective in its whole form, in its ultimate sense. And then I'm reminded of passages like 1 Peter 2 that we read earlier tonight. Verses 6 and 7. Now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in the praise, glory and honour when Christ is revealed. You see, Peter's reminding us that actually there is suffering, but ultimately... Genuine praise and glory and honour will be given to Jesus Christ when he is revealed in the midst of your testing and your suffering, because of your testing and suffering. And so I think for me, as I've looked at this, it becomes a question of trust. Do I really believe that God has my best interests at heart? Do I really believe that he is the guardian of my life? That he will not let my foot slip? Do I really trust that he can do that for me? Well, let me take you to the cross. Jesus, mocked, alone, dying, the definition of someone who has been harmed, facing his own death. And what does God do? Well, God didn't end the agony of death. He didn't remove harm. But he sent him through it in order that he could raise him from it. 
and ultimately, Jesus lives the resurrected life to its fullest. Was the Father his guardian? Yes. Was the creator of the universe involved? Yes. Was the ultimate outcome amazing? Yes. Was God proved right? Yes. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we see how God will guard our lives, how he will watch over them to bring them to completion and fulfilment. Now, at this point, you're thinking, wow, I just don't know whether I can do that. I don't know whether I can trust a God who acts like that. That, that seems like a tall order. Well, I want to tell you this something. There's good news. If you find this impossible and too much, I'm going to invite you to entrust yourself to God. Because what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus did for us on the cross. In taking our place, in taking all our weaknesses, our anxieties and our fears, as he hangs there on the cross, he says in a loud voice, a loud voice that reaches down to this day, Father, into your hands... I entrust or commit my spirit. Into your hands, at this moment, at this time, I give myself to you. And Jesus does what we could not do. He goes to the cross and entrusts himself to the Father. And so this year, as you look ahead... And as you think about the anxieties that you might have, I want to invite you to consider what the psalmist has had to say. I want you to consider the God who created the universe, the one who created all these beautiful things, the one who is the guard of your life, the one who watches over your life, the one who sent his son to die in your place so that ultimately you will be out of harm's way the one who sent his own son, who did, not, did what we could not do ourselves and entrusted himself to the Father. I invite you to entrust yourselves to him too. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit 
naac.com.au.